He is risen. Um, this is going to be. I, I actually don't know what the next hour is going to be, uh, but let me uh, tell you why I would say that. <clears throat> this chapel is the overflow for the sanctuary uh, in the next hour. And I don't know when people might start overflowing. Uh, the Sunday school teachers got together and thought, okay, let's, let's just do an abbreviated lesson because uh, you know some of you may want to get to seats uh, sooner than 10 till 10. And if you do, please feel free to do that. You will not hurt my feelings for bolting to the door. I will, I will not uh, take offense at that. So we're just going to get going and we'll see what the Lord, <clears throat> how the Lord leads us through all of this. But um, those are what, uh, those are events that are going on around us. And I uh, started to uh, think, all right, um, let me do an Easter message. But I thought, no, that's uh, the, the sunrise service, uh, from what I hear, was absolutely fantastic, and uh, the next hour will be as well. And then it dawned on me, where we are in Luke is an extremely important and logical place to be within the Easter message, and that is faith, because a risen Savior does no good to a person with no faith in that risen Savior. So that's what we're going to do is simply continue with where we are in Luke and uh, see how that, how that fits with an Easter message. I think it fits uh, supremely well. But what I mean by that is Luke chapter 9, verse 37. That's where we will be uh, as we begin this. <clears throat> We're going to see a, a vignette in the life of, of Jesus as we have been doing as we move through this uh, Gospel of Luke and indeed all four Gospels. That's what they are there for, to, to talk about the good news of, of this Savior and how, uh, how his life on earth progressed. Uh, what we get to today, however, is a bit jarring uh, it's, a, it's, a, and it's an enormous juxtaposition of where we were last time we were together, which was the transfiguration. One of the most, um, in, in fact, many commentators uh, consider the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain there as, as the single greatest uh, event in the life of Jesus. Those who disagree with that put the resurrection ahead of it. And I think I would probably go to the resurrection myself, but they both in, in a certain sense are synonymous in one regard. But think again about where we were last time at this, uh, this incredible mountaintop experience with three disciples. Remember the, the all 12 were not, Jesus didn't take but three the 12 are there in the vicinity, but he takes only three. He takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him, and they see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So you've got six uh, heavyweights on the top of this mountain as they see uh, the three uh, disciples, at least, are granted 
the greatest revelation of God's majestic glory ever granted to mankind. We saw, uh, as we looked at that passage, that there were occasions throughout the Old Testament of the Shekinah glory and Moses on Mount Sinai and all of those things were partial glimpses and, and uh, tangential aspects of the majesty of God was displayed. But on that mountain, on that day, at that uh, moment, those three disciples saw it in full measure. And that only happened that one time. Uh, so this is, this is an incredible experience. And it marked those three men. There are many passages in the books that they read <clears throat> and wrote that illustrate the impact it had on them. I'll just read one of them from the book of Second Peter in chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now that word majesty is a, is a word in reference to that transfigurated glory there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, those two words are in caps, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, that's the apostle Peter years later after this event and it still resonates. And in point of fact, he's using it to underscore the fact that Christianity is fact-based. It isn't myth-based, it is fact-based. Uh, so all of these things have, have uh, been transpiring through the 36th verse. And now we get to verse 37. And it's, it's uh, well, I'll just uh, read the 37th verse. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. You almost, it all, it, it's, imagine what Jesus must have felt that next day. Uh, Jesus has now lived 31, 32 years or so uh, as this in, incarnate son of God on this planet among folks like you and me. He had to give up eternal fellowship and glory every single moment of eternity with the Father and with the Spirit in order to come down here and do what he did on that cross. Uh, and now he's got to go back down off the mountain after that one, uh, that one episode where he's once again in total sync with all of that glory. Uh, but now he's, he's come and it's the next day and they've come down the mountain. So it's back to work, in other words. Uh, so back to the real world and immediately a great crowd meets him. That's a bit unusual because again, we don't, we don't really know which mountain, we don't know what mountain this was specifically, but we do know that he's beginning his movement south, southward toward Jerusalem. And he's 120, 150 miles almost north uh, when they have all of these experiences uh, that we've been reading about. But now he's moving slowly. And by the way, he's going to move in the gospel of Luke at least, it's going to be 11 chapters 
before we actually set a foot inside Jerusalem. So this journey down to Jerusalem is going to take some time as Luke, the historian, unfolds it. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, he's, he's encountered a crowd. One man in that crowd stood out, verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, those of you who've been with us through this Luke study, you know that's, that's, this isn't unique. We've seen this at least twice before with an encounter of an only child. And this man is no different. He cries out from the crowd uh, about uh, his only son. And I wonder, I would be stunned, frankly, if everybody in this room has not had a cry like that at some point. I thought about this passage last week in Nashville, the people in Nashville uh, at that awful event at the church uh, school there, how many of them had a thought similar to this. Um, I remember distinctly in our life uh, with our second son, he was, uh, he was still, how old was Timothy? Six months. Six months. Uh, Timothy had come in and he was, he was pretty ornery most of the time, frankly, through his first six months of life. Uh, but uh, we, this was, as I recall, about seven or eight at night, and we had been out. I don't remember where we'd been. Normally, we would have, he would have been down by then. We would have put him to bed by then. Uh, but uh, in the Lord's providence, we still had him up, and he, everything was fine until we got into the house, and within a very, very short number of minutes, he started turning out like a light bulb. Uh, he he become he became ashen colored. His his eye his pupils dilated. His, he was completely unresponsive. You could pick an arm up and it would just flop. And it was like you were looking at a light bulb that was just fading. And there was nothing. We were we were trying everything we could to stimulate uh, Timothy. We couldn't. Nothing was working. He was just leaving us. And uh, we were simply praying as, as we got him to an emergency room. And they did the same thing we did, trying to stimulate him and poke him with needles and all these other sorts of things. And within about two hours, he turned back on again, uh, just the same way he turned off. The doctors didn't know. They, they said, we have no clue what, what we just experienced. Could have been a SIDS event that we happened to have him still awake as opposed to having him in a bed. You just don't know. But the point is, everything on this planet, as much as we would love it to be under our control, it's not. And especially with our children. Our children just uh, rip our hearts out, uh, sometimes for very good ways and, and purposes, and sometimes uh, less, uh, less so. But, um, but sometimes you hit a snag like this man has hit in this crowd, where you realize how completely uh, you, you have nothing to do with what is unfolding in front of you. It's just going to be up to the Lord. And that is the position that this man is in, in verse 38. He says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Here is the problem in verse 39. And behold, a spirit seizes him 
and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So this man has a son who is, who is struggling with, with this, uh, some sort of, of spirit, demon, whatever you would like to call it, uh, that is tearing this, this son apart in front of his father's eyes. Uh, but there was something else going on. Now, as we go through Luke, as, as you know, it's, uh, it's this, usually most of these events are covered as well in Matthew and Mark. And when you add Matthew and Mark to what's going on here, you add some additional data to it. In Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, you see this going on. Chapter 9 of Mark, verses 14 and 15, saying, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Verse 15, the crowd, uh, they see Jesus and they're amazed and they ran up and greeted him. But the point I want you to see here is uh, the scribes were arguing with the disciples. Now, these are not the 12 disciples. These are the nine disciples that did not accompany Jesus to the mountain. So you've got Jesus with the three joining the nine and the nine are engaged, locked in an argument with scribes. Why? What's going on here? Verse 40, back to Luke now, Luke chapter nine, verse 40. The man says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. If you remember only a few days before this, Jesus has sent the 12 out in groups of two precisely among other things, not only to preach the gospel, but to cast out demons and they were successful in doing it. And they, they were thrilled about that. And they came back and reported to Jesus how they were able to do these sorts of things. But here, they're not able to do it. So an argument has broken out between the scribes and these, these nine. Uh, meanwhile, the boy here is, is in agony. And now if you look at Mark chapter nine, as well as Matthew chapter 17, as well as Luke chapter nine, as we're doing what you see in a cumulative sense of what this demon is doing to this young boy, uh, he screams out when the demon uh, takes a hold of him. He, he throws him to the ground in convulsions. He foams at the mouth. That's from Luke. He grinds his teeth. That's from Mark. He becomes stiff as a board. That's from Mark. He has often been cast into fire or water by the demon. That's from Matthew 17. And because of that, he's covered with scars from the abuse that this demon has put this young man through. From Mark also, you learn the demon has made this, this young man deaf and dumb. He can't speak. He can't hear. Uh, so you begin to feel the angst uh, that this father has with his only son but the nine are powerless to do anything about it. Why? Why can they not do anything? Verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. 
That's an interesting statement by Jesus. Uh, it almost seems uh, a statement of irritation. In fact, I, will, I have no trouble whatsoever seeing it as a statement of irritation. But remember, Jesus is less than 24 hours from being back, essentially back in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, but he's had to leave that behind and come back and rejoin this. And he knows where he's headed. He knows that he's going to a cross. These, uh, he's, he's mentioned that to his disciples uh, and he'll mention it again, but that's not going to mean much to them, but he knows for certain. And here he is, he's just sent these, these disciples out with the power to cast out demons and now they can't do it. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, he says, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? The disciples had lost their faith focus on Jesus. The reason they can't cast out these demons is they have already been impressed and already started folding in on themselves thinking about those past experiences. That past event when Jesus sends them out two by two, he sends them out with the power of his spirit and with the ability to do this. They're scared to death. They're listening to every word Jesus has told them and they're careful to follow all the procedures. But once they do that and it's worked, now they're thinking we're pretty good. Uh, we made it happen. Uh, we, we did this, we did that. So the most of the commentators, and I, I would, it'd be hard not to come up with anything uh, better or hard to come up with anything better. They're, they're emphasizing the fact that, that these disciples, as it is so, so easy to do, start to feel that they are in control. Uh, they have lost uh, the, the understanding that every single thing that goes down the pike is because I am connected to Jesus. And when I take my focus off, uh, Peter, as you know, is going to learn that when he starts sinking in the water, uh, when, when he wants to join Jesus out in the middle of the lake. And he says, let me walk on the water to you. And Jesus says, fine, hop on out of the boat, Peter. And Peter hops out and he's walking fine. Then he starts to look around him and says, I'm, I'm standing on water here. So as soon as his focus leaves Jesus, bang. Uh, that's what goes on over and over throughout the, the story of, of these men. And I'm not knocking these men. I am, I am saying that I put myself out and, and tell you how easy it is to start relying on books or relying on on what you've heard other preachers preach or whatever it might be uh, and get the focus off of Jesus and away from the prayer that's going to be necessary to maintain that, that conduit to where the power is, which is through the Holy Spirit in accord with the Father and the Son's dictates. So Jesus, meanwhile, he's, he's seeing all of, of this go down and he's had to re-enter this world of sin he knows he's going to a cross and he's a little bit perturbed with his disciples. They've moved their trust uh, from him into a process. Uh, note that this generation, especially the disciples were twisted and perverse. Those words there in verse 41 in Greek are the same words used in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. This is a song that every adult Jew 
was very, very familiar with because it was, it was uh, sung at the synagogue very, very often. The Song of Moses I refer to is in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, they would recognize this uh, as a personal accusation that you are twisted, that you are perverse. Uh, he, he's saying you've, you've gone nowhere past what Moses was having to speak to the children of Israel. And that would have stung a bit. But the very, very good news is the end of verse 41. Bring your son here. Regardless of Jesus's perspective on what these disciples are thinking and feeling, Jesus is not going to back away from the fact uh, that uh, he is a God of love. He is, he is going to reach out and he's going to help this father who is in such agony with a son who is in far worse agony. So Jesus says, bring your son here. Now, verses 42 and 43. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. So yet again, the, the, this is happening with Jesus standing just a few feet away. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all, verse 43, were astonished at the majesty of God. Uh, this, this little vignette, similar again to others that we have seen, Jesus is not going to, to move away uh, from people who come to him with this earnest plea, and he will not move away from you, and he will not move away from me. Now, he may answer prayers in ways that we're not necessarily wishing he would, and he may take longer to do it, but there is no prayer to a Christian that has ever gone up that has not been answered by the Lord. Uh, he will answer it, he will answer it in his way, and therefore he will answer it in the best way. I know, I, I'm like these disciples, I, I know exactly how I think Jesus ought to answer a, a certain prayer or two here and there. Uh, but it may very well be that Jesus knows a whole lot more than I do. And he will answer, and he will answer it better than I would have had him do. So uh, this is the end of this little vignette on faith. Even as this boy is, is coming toward Jesus, the demon again throws him to the ground and convulses him, but he rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy, gives the boy back to his father, and all are astonished at his majesty. Again, that word majesty. Uh, the majesty that Jesus has just revealed in this miracle is a sub-reflection, if you will, of the majesty that these three disciples witnessed of him on the top of that Mount of Transfiguration. And interestingly enough, if you go back to the Mark account of this event, this is where you find the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's in Mark chapter nine, verse 24, in the midst of this event. I believe, help my unbelief. So here is, uh, here is this uh, father who has just had his, his son in a predicament that was far beyond his ability. That it was probably difficult uh, simply to hold his son sometimes with the convulsions and the scars and, the, and all of the things this man went through. But he was willing to come to Jesus himself and says, I do believe, help my unbelief. 
And in that phrase, that sentence, there's a whole lot of, of cogitation that needs to take place with all of us. When we think about faith, we've got a risen savior, a risen savior to those whose faith is in that savior as Lord and savior of their lives. Uh, it doesn't mean that your faith is, just as these disciples, these disciples haven't, haven't become unbelievers when they couldn't cast out demons. They haven't lost anything except the, the ins and outs, the warp and woof of everyday life. It's, it's sort of the, similar to the, the question of assurance of salvation. Uh, assurance of salvation can ebb and flow based on any number of things, individual personalities, uh, issues of life, uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. But your faith is still there. And that is what this man so, I think, poignantly uh, states by, I believe, help my unbelief. Those, those moments when I'm aware of the fact uh, that I'm coming to the Lord, to my risen Savior, with, with a faith. But deep in my heart, I'm thinking, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I feel weak. Maybe I've... I've in, indwelling sin has returned and I'm, I'm weak for that reason. There, again, any number of reasons, but I believe, Father, help my unbelief and keep my faith solid. And that is done by going back again and again and again to Jesus Christ. That's the issue that, that we see here. And I'm going to, uh, we'll pick up there next time at, um, at verse 44. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer. Father, on this day in particular, we, we celebrate uh, every year. We, we long to celebrate Easter. We love celebrating Easter. Uh, there is no better news than a risen Savior. You, in a sense, honored your son by raising him from that grave because of his total faithfulness to come to this earth, to put up with people like us, to see firsthand the sinful heart of man, yet never ever to sin himself. And because of that, he could go to that cross, die in our stead, and not, take, not just take our sins upon him on that cross, but give us his perfect righteousness. There and there alone, enables us to come before you in complete confidence and know that you will say, well done, good and faithful son, well done, good and faithful daughter. Father, we, we pray that you will indeed acknowledge the fact that we believe you have given us the gift of faith, but help us in those moments when we know unbelief and we know it not to be permanent, but we know the struggles, Father, whether it be with children, whether it be with employment, whether it be with life and death, physical issues, whatever it may be, Father, help us in our unbelief to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, united to him and back again and again and again to the grace and the mercy of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.